Hello and welcome to TRK Mailbag. My name is Tom Savage. If you have a question you would like to send into the next TRK Mailbag, which will be out on this Wednesday, I've got a, I've got a studio now. I'm sitting in a swivel chair as we speak in my little studio. Um, so if you want to send me one in, you can send it to info at 3 or you can go to the TRK Mailbag channel on the TRK Secret Club on, Pat- on Discord and you can uh, leave me a question there or you can leave a question underneath this uh, podcast on Patreon if you so choose. Anyway, I've got a ton of questions to get through at the moment, so I'm just going to go right at them. Uh, this is from Ronan. Tom, what do coaches have on their laptops during matches? Is it a mix of live video, uh, TV feed, GPS data, live stats? Uh, can they do any fancy analysis like uh, the offensive ruck work uh, stats in real time? You've got it exactly on there. They've got live video, they've got TV feed, um, they have GPS data as well, and like they have some live stats coming in from Opta. I think different organizations give you different looks at different sort of statistics um but that's kind of what comes in and they um when you're looking at guys on on, on the, the laptops a lot of the time if they're not the head coach you see the analysis guy cutting together little bits and pieces to show at halftime if you watch the uh if you ever see halftime footage in these uh at these games you will see a tv screen most of the time that they're pointing at that is stuff from the game that they will have picked up and that they will have looked at and looked to try to highlight at halftime either pictures of the opposition that we've seen we want to exploit or stuff that we haven't done well that we need to fix up that's what they're all doing there but you've pretty much nailed it there um with regards to what they're getting in and they've got to be careful too because there's only so much data can be like stuff like the GPS data is usually very accurate, but other you know stuff like carries and and like you know you've got your meters beyond the collision and stuff like that. Like that that stuff is all very like it's so subject to change because this is all happening live, and they get in a couple of seconds after it happens to give you a kind of a rough overview at different points in the game where when you combine it with your GPS stats, you can kind of see if a guy is beginning to flag or fall off a little bit because you've got individual stats for the guys who are there. But um, yeah, you have to be careful with them because they they can be inaccurate and I wouldn't be making, and, and they don't make decisions solely on what they see in those screens. And you said here, given the level of useful data likely available, why such dinky laptops and not huge multiple screen setups? Mainly just for ease of transport um, because when you have your laptop like that, you can take it back to the hotel with you and you can you know cut up footage for the next day and you know there's different like some teams have huddle and stuff like that where you can send players individual bits and pieces that you want them to see from the previous game as part of your overall analysis package it's just easier to bring those laptops with you rather than having a big setup which more than likely you're going to have to get somebody there to help you set up and get right and like it's complex enough for radio you know like we don't have stats on the radio like we have the tv screen that's there um in like in in Thoman Park and in Musgrave Park like Musgrave Park there's no TVs in Thoman Park there are TVs but what you see there is a TV feed for the most part in other stadiums and I think with the TV broadcasts you have a special like uh, box where they show you or TV screen where they show you um the stats from the game in the same way similar enough to what the coaches get um but yeah it's complex enough to get the radio set up and if you're going to have a multi-screen setup and stuff like that you'd be there a long time and that's an extra body you've got to bring and extra stuff you have to store so they try and keep it as mobile as possible um so th- thanks very much for that question Ronan. 
This is from Four Ballin. Uh, do you think the sackings of international coaches like Jones and Rennie from November uh, is likely to happen again or is a once-off? I think, especially in the modern game, you try to get as much cohesion as possible. And this is true in international level more so than, than almost any in any other level of the game. Um, with the money and the, I suppose the pressure that comes with top level test rugby these days if you go on a bad run as a coach and bear in mind like Eddie Jones brought some level of success to English rugby since he joined in 2015-2016 he won multiple Six Nations I think he won a Grand Slam got into a World Cup final lost it but like they still played incredibly well I think they beat the All Blacks in his term as well when you start losing games or if results start to turn against you and performances have a kind of a level of flatness to them it's any coach can get sacked and I think when you're looking at the World Cup coming up especially with Dave Rennie as well um, if the union feels that they can get a bump and maybe improve what they've got coming up um, because you look at any collection of teams and you look at any um, you know especially teams at the top level in the sport there's not that many right World Cups are massive proving grounds and there's no union is immune to poor performances because it ultimately costs you money like you look at Wales for example you look at Wayne Pivak getting sacked also um, like that's something that you know I, I think people expected with a year out of the World Cup that that won't happen same with Jones like I was very surprised to see them make that call but like it's one of those things that if success is not being attained by the current coach that can only go on so long. And I think the idea of, oh, we'll be giving up to the World Cup, I'm not sure if that's the case anymore because unions and, you know, the, the days of, you know, uh, of coaches being treated almost like, you know, like valued club members and giving them time and whatever else and stuff like that, that's more likely to happen in, in club rugby than what it is in test rugby. The pressure is to win and win now because so much uh, money is at stake. And... I think with the attention and the the media coverage and everything surrounding the the certainly Eddie Jones anyway this year, the longer that started to go on, the more pressure came from the coaches, and and that ended up being like media pressure plays a large part in union decision making. Believe it or not, like when you have a, a coach who's unpopular and results are also not good it's very difficult for that guy to stay in his job for very long. Credit evaporates out of the bank pretty quickly. And Eddie Jones had a ton of credit in the bank. I think his idea was that he was going to become and and really just give England the chance to become a team who would win a World Cup in 2023. He was building towards it. Now, I'm not sure if he had the player base to do that. I... I'm a huge fan of Eddie Jones I think he's a great great coach but you're looking at you know the difficulty in getting an England team who at the moment at the top level do not have a whole ton of talent in my opinion it's difficult to get that team to a stage where you can say okay we're building to a World Cup but with who who were you building with that was a problem, I think, with Eddie Jones, that he, that, like, that he began to see that as it went on, that, you know, the press darling of, you know, Marcus Smith 
as talented a player as he is, that's not a guy you can build around at, at, at test level. The game just isn't like that. So, you know, you're kind of in between two stools there of who you have to pick, who you are, you know, especially when results are poor, everybody starts to go with, well, who's the guy you didn't pick? Especially when there's such a, I would say a large campaign around Marcus Smith, that becomes a problem then. And you look at Steve Borthwick, one of the first things he did was move Marcus Smith to a, you know, to a bench role because he understands that like his currency over the next year is wins a poor World Cup for Steve Borthwick and he could find himself on the outs as well especially if that's followed up with a poor Six Nations he could be gone and that's like that's less than a year and a half this is where we're at it's one of those things that like if your team is not winning the coach is the easiest thing to get rid of especially at test level and like you might you mightn't think it it could happen to Andy Farrell just as easy um, and, and that's kind of where you know the the need for money the need for gates the need for sponsorships when you start losing all of those go down and that's not something that any union can tolerate for very very long I think we're at a new era now where especially post-COVID where there's you know the margins are so tight in this game success is going to be at a premium and you can look at Ian Foster at the All Blacks like he hasn't been sacked so much as you know there's obviously he's being replaced after the World Cup which puts him in a in a fairly you know in, in a fairly weird situation where he is a lame duck technically you know but like you look at the the pressure that the All Blacks came under for you know losing to a very good France side obviously a very good Irish side as well at home like that just can't happen that just, like if you're the All Blacks that cannot happen and you look at his win rate as um, as an All Black coach like he's got 68% which again look is, is not that bad but when you compare like Steve Hansen before him at 86.9% win rate Graham Henry at 85.4 like the last guy who was anywhere close to Ian Foster when it comes to win rate for the All Blacks was Wayne Smith over one year you know in, in the from 2000 to 2001 um, like that's kind of where the All Blacks were at the start of that decade but then went on you know look at it like 20 years really a 20 year run of being the best team in the world without question like but 68% you know win race like that's not exactly like disastrous you know I mean look for the All Blacks maybe it is but I wouldn't look at that as being a kind of a, a, a disastrous win record for a head coach like I mean you look at um Jacques Nienabar, for example, as head coach of um, South Africa with 26 games. I know Ian Foster has a few more, obviously, but that's in, since 2020. Uh, Jacques Nienabar has a 62% win rate. And now the perception of Jacques in, in, uh, in, in South Africa at the moment is mixed, I would say. And look, again, in South Africa, there isn't so much of a an onus on style points with regards to how you win. Winning is the be-all and end-all there. So like 62% for that is not exactly the it's not exactly desperate stuff altogether you know like you look at Heineken Mayer at 66% Alice, Alistair Kutsia had a 44% win rate for the you know for, for the Springboks for his one or two years in charge which was disastrous for them they, they can't they, they can't be dealing with that but like 68% for the All Blacks they're not used to that that's enough to get you sacked because the pressure like if, if you know if you're seen to be beaten at home too often that hurts home gates 
and if it hurts home gates that means you've got to drop prices which means that's like that's a difficult thing to then turn around so the pressure is on on coaches in in all in all levels so it's um yeah in, in test rugby more so because there's literally there's so much money at stake and it's so important because all it, all it takes is one or two bad years at test level and you're in big trouble this next question is from ec23 uh, tom in a rugby expansion draft and you're the gm for Carcon, ugh, new urc franchise please no who are the five or so players anywhere in the world you'd build your club around um who am i bringing to temple hill me and donal lenahan sit down at the table who are we bringing in gary Ringrose? no no we're going to bring in i'm winning that argument okay i've got five guys i had to think about this about who would i bring in to lead my franchise right and one of these names on there you'll be surprised at the other four you probably won't be the first guy I'm bringing in is Malcolm Marks. You have to have a, a top quality hooker these days. Um, you look at Malcolm Marks, he's got a bit of everything. Uh, physicality, can play in the tight, dangerous in the white channels, good line-out player, good scrummager. We can fill in the blanks around him at loose head. That's a, 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 a unit in, in and of itself. But Malcolm Marks is a great starter to have there. And when you look at the importance of the line-out in the modern game, you need to have a guy like him who can give you a threat off the back of it and um, like again I can't think of anybody better I'd look to try and build with next to him I'm going to get my tight head now I'm looking at this from the perspective of the scrum doesn't really matter all that much anymore what matters is is that the scrum you can have any size of player really there's no real height requirement that you have to have for tight head for me in the modern scrum anyway your loose head and your hooker need to be approximately the same height but your tight head for me can be any old size at all because that's that's a, a unit in and of itself so for me i am drafting number two overall for me would be pone faamo silly um from the melbourne rebels he is six foot five he is 130 kg 20 stone uh, seven pounds in old money and uh, he is a dominant ball carrier he's a heavy scrummaging prop he's an excellent lifter in the line out a dangerous mauler he doesn't get his um his head shoved in in the scrum uh, that's a guy who i feel is just I, I would draft him because i'm looking at what works in the modern game and he is a guy that works I would back him up in the second row. You just need to have an elite level second row. I'm putting RG's name in there. Uh, RG, I think we've seen even at 70, 80% of his full power um, against the Stormers in that game there last week. Um, outstanding. And I think he brings a modern skill set, especially if we're looking at the, 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 the game where tackle heights are going to only, only going to become lower. Who better than a six foot nine? Um, 125 kg super athlete who can offload with both hands and can already do it over the top of defenders with an arm or or a wingspan you just can't deal with um that's the type of guy who i'm looking at as being a game changer going forward for um for my carcon urc team we're gonna have to come up with a different name um so with uh that i'm gonna go with my next because you need to have the spine of your team needs to be in the pack so at number eight i'm going with gavin coombs um i think that gavin coombs is a player that i would look to anchor my back row around you can fit in 
any number of guys around that. There's always a lot of small forwards and stuff like that. But I look at what Gavin Coombs brings as a half-lock power forward. And I see a guy there who can give you so much in, in the modern game. Um, his ability to score tries from close range is, is always, you know, th- that's always useful. But I, I think his overall game is getting to a really good point at the moment. And with his age as well, that's a guy who could be a really good player for you for the next six, seven years. And, you know, give you that Dwayne Vermeulen style um, role set, which I think is very, very valuable. And my final draft is the number 10. I'm looking for a guy who's ready to drive us right now. Okay? Who can drive us right now. Owen Farrell would be my draft if I could pick anybody to be the guy who leads that team. Uh, You can pretty much dot anybody else around. You can draft lower down or whatever else. But I'd be going for Owen Farrell to run that team as captain. And I think that that core of a team there you can put any number of guys around that but I think with you know uh, when you're looking to try and build a team I go with hooker tight head second row back row 10 once you have elite quality there you can start building in other aspects of it but yeah that that for me would be the that's where I'd start for my Carcon URC team what am I going to call them I'm going to have to come up with a name I'm terrible at names it took me so long to come up with three Red Kings by the way um, I just stumbled on it when I was coming up with the name on that. Now, bear in mind, I was desperate and mental at the time. So, you know, the, 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 I suppose necessity really does kind of push you. Anyway, thanks for that question. JMCCC says, or J, is that JMACCC? I don't know. I hope I didn't fuck that up too much. Is the priority of play in the back five kicking in defence nowadays? If so, how does that affect academy recruitment? Also, do you think in-game kicking game coaches could make sense? There already are specific kicking coaches um, who look at stuff like exits and so on. But I think kicking in the in the modern game, there's a lot... Well, actually, no. There's a lot that the fans don't understand. And there's lots that, you know, modern pundits don't understand about kicking. But obviously people in the pro side of the game do understand and there is a value in kicking and kicking strategy and Munster certainly do coach that also but like you know when you look at the in-game kicking coaches like I suppose it comes down to your overall strategy for the game itself your kicking game cannot be isolated and it cannot be a separate entity from the game you're playing coming into a match so like that's all tidied up in the week beforehand but Munster have a guy like Graham Graham uh, George Murray is the guy who coaches the uh, the kicking at the moment for Munster. So yeah, that's already there. Anyway, the other part of your question is the uh, priority of play uh, kicking in defence. Well, to a certain extent, um, the way backline has kind of gone is especially for teams who play counter transition style rugby, but even for teams who who don't like. <sighs> It's never been more difficult, I think, to be a back. The The range of skills you have to have, especially for midfielders, is just ridiculous. Like, you know, I think you look at a guy like James Lowe, a winger, you know, when you look at, you know, what number he typically wears, but the sort of kicking and the sort of, of, of handling he's expected to do these days, you would look at as being a the kind of thing you'd expect a kind of a, a, an inside centre or a second 5'8 from a couple of, maybe from 10 years ago to be, to be doing... So, like, the role sets and the variety of skills that are required, they've never been more complex. By that, I think a lot of teams are looking for very balanced players who aren't necessarily, you know, you look at a guy like Manu Tuolagi, for example, over the last number of years. Prior to, I would say, 2019, 
he was a player who would strike fear I would say into opposition defence coaches now it just feels like he's not he's still obviously a very good player but to me at the moment a guy like that just feels a little bit one dimensional where if you stop the carry and you can you know put one or two guys well two guys typically to stop that carry what else does he have is he a kicker of the ball is he a handler like can he run different aspects of backfield coverage like if he is in the backfield like what is he likely to do other than run it like if he can't win the collision what good is that player so there's a wide variety of skills I think that all players are expected to have now and certainly in the back line that you know I think go beyond what we would have typically looked at you know in, in days gone by like you look at midfield like so much of midfield work now is actually breakdown work same with wingers in the white channels like there's so much um, I suppose unification of skills where I think utility backs before were kind of you know jack of all trades kind of you know appearance to them but I think in the modern game it's an element of positionless rugby now there's always going to be room for for specialist skill sets that a guy look is good at this aspect of his game but unless you have a a rounder skill set I think in the modern game you're going to find yourself quite limited like any midfielder I would look at now I'm looking for like a couple of things I'm looking for uh, offensive breakdown work like what's your accuracy and your physicality like there there are some fellas hit rocks like they've never done it before in their lives in, in, in pro games that can't be the case anymore with any sort of modern scheme your midfielders are going to play a large role in the offensive side of the ball uh, at the breakdown then you're looking at any midfielder or even winger these days I would get my reps up stepping in as first receiver it's not just okay anymore to be a guy who is hugging the wing waiting for the ball now there's certain variants of power winger i think that 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 suit that aspect of it but i think when you consider the i suppose the 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 breadth of skills that most top players have these days you should really be able to cover 11 12 13 and 14 perhaps even fullback um like and to be able to do that I think that's the sort of player they're looking for now there's always going to be a spot for a guy who might be you know a little bit on the smaller side but like there's certain really valuable role sets you can give those players as finishers or as outside wingers but like for a lot of the the outside back line these days you've got to have that bit of size you know like 6'2 6'3 in and around that you know you know you've got to be around 95 100 and something kg you've got to give him a bit of everything so it's not just enough to be like and I think you look at the evolution of Gary Ringrose where he is not the playmaking midfielder that people assumed he was and, and that he would be I don't think he's that guy but what he is is a really good defensive player in a system that suits him perfectly and he's got a, a decent turn of pace he's got a decent carry of the ball he's got good instincts so he shows up in the right areas of the field like even look at the way that Munster play with R12 and 13 at the moment and um, with Fekitoa and with uh, Antoine Frisch Fekitoa ends up in wide positions almost like a winger in the majority of our offensive schemes so that's something that if he didn't have that ability in him like it would just wouldn't work so like I think that's when you're looking at the, the wider skill sets they're looking for players who have that ability where maybe they were a 10 at underage maybe they had that playmaking at that stage but they have the size and maybe the physicality to play at 12 or 13 or whatever else 
I don't think there's going to be any limits as to what these guys are going to be expected to do like there's a guy Stephen Kiley who is in the NTS the National Talent System he plays with All Crescent and uh, he is such a widely skilled player um, he's, he can kick really well he's got good handling um, he's got good offloading he's got great pace that's the sort of player that, that, that I think every team should be looking for like I know there is still that tendency out there where you know some coaches love a big midfielder like they like a guy who's 6'3", 6'4", with that level of physicality those guys will always have a, a utility but they can't just be that they can't just be big and look to try and win collisions because you've got forwards who can do that your midfielders have to cover and, your, and even your wingers these days are, they're almost like auxiliary midfielders the way that a lot of wingers are played now they have to be able to cover such a wider skill set than just that. Then, you know, I, I think certainly it's true to say that, like, it is changing what the modern outside back looks like. And I suppose that will then change as the type of players that that, that we're looking for, um, both at academy level and from a signing perspective. But at academy level, I think what it means is, certainly with the way that the game is going, you know, you look at previously any guy who had any bit of size be they 6'4 6'5 and you know were decent handlers at a ball maybe or whatever else they would end up getting put into number 8 um, or into the forwards I think with this the way the game is going with the skills and the, and the, the wide skill set that's required I think we'll start to see a, a kind of a, a I won't say players getting shorter but I think we will see more widely skilled players appearing at 12, 13 even in the winger spots that they have more balance and I think that you know when you look at rugby being the land of the giants and certainly over the last couple of years I think even from like the likes of you know the mid 2000s up until relatively recently everybody or or a lot of teams look to try and have that massive hitter at midfield you know we had Damien Dilende we had Chris Farrell we had a couple of other guys you look at other clubs have the likes of Andre Esterhazen but even him at, at Harlequins he is more of a, a balanced player than just being a hit up guy and I think that's where the modern game is going it's going to become so complex that having somebody that plays such a simple role in the midfield like you'd be better off having a forward play that role so I think it's going to certainly affect um, recruitment and it's going to certainly uh, affect academy development going forward so uh, I hope that goes some way to answering your question uh, this next one is from uh, D Finn Photography. Uh, given Munster can't get dispensation for non-Irish qualified front row forward, is there any Irish qualified players you have identified? This is quite difficult. Uh, first of all, on dispensation, I've got a podcast coming. Um, it's it's next week now, um, the week of the European uh, semi-final with Toulouse and Leinster. Because um, I've been asking people around about what is the deal with the Irish system when it comes to what David Nusifora's role is, what he controls, what he doesn't control. I'm trying to give people an idea as to what the system that Ireland have actually is in 2023. So when it comes to dispensation, as you've mentioned there for a front row power forward, um, look, it comes down to national depth charts mainly. Now, at the same time, it is always open to change. So if there is a, I suppose, a... Um, uh, a situation that's maybe fluid at the international level where we'll say at hooker at the moment um, you've got like Tom Stewart on top of Ronan Kelleher on top of Rob Herring on top of um, Dan Sheehan to make that an incredibly deep um, depth chart at the moment where at the moment for Munster we have Niall Scannell probably as the number one guy 
that she'd split into position with Dermot Barron. Both of those guys, I would say, are outside the top five at the moment of, of hookers in Ireland, just because it's such a stacked position. And I would say as well that a few more mall tries from Munster next season will bring a lot of those guys back in, because I think their overall game as you know, heavy support forwards um, is actually really good at the moment, but that's a different story. Um, but if it's a case that Munster have been turned down this season for uh, signing in uh, non-Irish qualified props, as I've been told, apparently is the case. There's a few reasons for that. National depth charts mainly. But you are then going into the Irish qualified market, which is a weird one because there are loads of people who are Irish qualified, more so than even the people who, on the face of it, do not seem like they're Irish qualified, have an Irish granny somewhere. I think looking at Antoine Frisch, for example, last season, that would have been a guy who doesn't show up on any public charts as being somebody with an Irish um, relation, you know? And I think a lot of the stuff with this, you go looking at different databases of players, and there is their, their um, I suppose, their open designation, which is the country that they may have played under a drug before, and that goes forward on their listing. Um, those people are fairly easy to look at. There's a guy, um, Mulhall, um, he was playing, he's from Kilkenny. He was playing with Bristol um, last season, and I think he's playing with Sale this year. Um, he is a big uh, loose, uh, loose head prop, 6'2", around 120kg. Um, decent player, not sure of his overall ability, because I, I honestly haven't seen too much of him um, to make a, a kind of a qualified uh, judgment on it. He is a, a, a guy who is playing at, at a relatively high level, though, at the moment. Is Irish qualified as well. That's something that I, I think is, is, is worth keeping an eye on, a guy like that. You've got other fellas then who are like, you know, your Ali Yeagers, who I think, to be honest, I'm not sure if that's somebody who long term is somebody worth, you know, investing any sort of mental capacity in as somebody who may may possibly end up playing for, for an Irish province. I mean... Perhaps Leinster, maybe, but you know, I wouldn't say there's too much of a too much of a chance of that at the moment. Um, but yeah, no, it, it. I think if there is Irish qualified props out there, that outside of the ones that we've seen, like you're kind of looking for players to to be aware of their Irish qualifiedness. Like, um, you know, you look at uh, Martin Mulhall is this guy's name. He is um, yeah, six two. 120 kg. Uh, he has, he's actually playing with, well, he has played with Saracens. I think he's with Northampton at the moment. He's played in the Premiership Rugby Cup from this season. But yeah, he's actually had a fairly diverse career. He started off at Saracens for a year, went to play Swansea University, um, at which I think he was doing at the same time. Back at Saracens then, then at Swansea University again, Bristol Bears, Northampton Saints, Bristol Bears again, and uh, back with Saints now. So yeah, he's bouncing around between these, uh, these, these teams over the last couple of years. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of him, to be honest. Um, but yeah, he's certainly there. But he's another guy as well who you like you might just not be aware of. This guy exists even. Um, and there are, look, there are guys out there, like I said, who have, you know, a bit like, the, is there a, a Mac Hansen-like, uh, you know, gem out there? I mean, it's always possible, you know, it is. But they're very hard to, to come across. They're very hard to, to spot outside of what we've already identified in Ireland, you know, so like there are, there are guys like I mean again who go way off and and come back 
a completely different prospect than what they left. I mean, no, no bigger example than that than uh, than Ty Byrne. But that'll just give you an idea as to how difficult it is to actually find guys who have that, you know, who've been missed by everybody and who can all of a sudden come in and they're top players. Like, the, the Mack Hansen story is remarkable in that, you know, for a guy to come in and to be, honestly, to be so undervalued that he immediately comes in and starts making an impact at test rugby like that's that's mad like it like that is so unusual for that to happen um it's almost kind of defies belief like where you couldn't really look at that and say well this is something that we can realistically look at that can happen again it's so rare um like you could look at certain guys like there's the um uh what's his name uh, Stefani uh, Lombard playing for the U, uh, for uh, Buccaneers at uh, in Division One B is a guy who looks like he's got the physical capacity. The overall skill set though would need to be a work on, but like he's you know a, a really good friend of uh, Roman Salanoa. That's a guy who's you know I mean technically I think he could be Irish qualified right now or about to be. So there could be something to look at there, but yeah no look it's it's difficult at the moment. I don't know anybody who would be ready to step in as being one worth signing because look there are a ton of Irish qualified props like it's about are you worth signing are you worth spending the money that we could spend somewhere else to bring you in here to have a look at you you know because you look at Luke Rigney for example really good uh tighthead prop in division 1A uh, was in training with Munster over the over the the preseason i think over the end of last season as well um towards the last couple of months of it but he found it, from what I heard, like the the going a little bit tough when it comes to the scrummaging and the physicality. And he is a big man. Like, so there's plenty of guys to sign. It's about, are you signing the right guy? Are you spending the money on the right spaces? Because, like, you look at a guy like up at Ulster, um, Gareth, uh, Gareth Milinicinovic, who is, again, just a huge man, um, who has, like, he's played Division 1B this year, you know? Like, on the face of it, like you look at the, he signed for Ulster a couple of years ago. Um, all the physical profiles that you would look at at the moment for guys you would want, you know, like he's he's coming up on on thirty, he'll be thirty one this year, six three hundred thirty kg, but like he hasn't played in twenty since twenty nineteen a whole ton of rugby. Like you know he's had a few injuries, but yeah, no, it's 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 a difficult one, like because there there are guys out there, but it's about are we spending the right money. Are you worth the money that we're spending, even if it's not a whole load? Are you worth that? And I think that's the that's the active question here. So to answer your question, no, I don't know anybody right now who'd be willing to step in and who like who I could say for sure would be an underrated type player. But uh, it's something that I, I think that if the right guy is there, it's always taking a punt on him. You know, like Chris Moore, for example, uh, he's getting another shot next year because I think he might have the right stuff. Um, but there is always an element of gambling about it. Um, P Dog Eight says, Munster have had a lot of injuries compared to the other provincial sides. If the SNC is the issue, what can realistically be changed, and how long would it take? Are these changes already underway? Yeah, look, I I think what uh, Munster are trying to do is, an an SNC doesn't really go over a one season schedule. You know, I think the way that Munster are changing our our training, and in practice, what this means is. Um, there's less standing around between sessions. It goes from session to session to session to session. 
and like really really intense and in a really hard block that builds a level of fitness as well and and durability that i think look you always need as a rugby player with regards to the snc we do pick up a lot of knocks but it's hard to know how much of that is down to the actual literal physio and literal strength and conditioning programs that guys are on because there's some players who we've had available all season long and have no have have had no injuries to a certain extent it kind of comes down to the individual so like that's something that you know you you you, you try to mitigate as much as possible especially when you've got you know like uh, this season for example the second row was the the area of the team that got burned down to the ground we have that a lot in in this club where every season there are at least one or two positions that get burned down to the core like it was tight hit prop a couple of years ago um where i think it was stephen archer and john ryan got injured when they were you know more senior guys for example and put us under big pressure then you had the last couple of years where it's been basically since i'd say maybe 2016 2017 where you have if we're lucky if we've got two full-size second rows available and we're blessed if we have three and that's something that I think is a nature of the beast when it comes to the athletes themselves because we need to use these guys quite a bit and the more usage you have of a player the more I suppose the more wear and tear they pick up but plus as well the bigger the athlete the taller the athlete the more you have to mind them to a certain extent especially if they play a large role for you in a game with that in mind like the performance of Jean Klein over the last um, 16 games for Munster unbelievable availability kind of is he's been a season saver you know like uh, Thomas O'Hearn this year picked up a, a really awkward shoulder injury like and shoulders are bollocks when you're a rugby player especially if you're a second row because you, you just use it for everything like in your in the line out if, you're, if your shoulder isn't right as a, as a you know jumper as a catcher like defensively you won't be as effective as you could be so like there's so much conditioning and prep has to go back in to rehab that so that when you go back playing you don't fuck it up again pretty early like so because you, your, your shoulder can come back stronger when you dislocate it like it's always going to be a little, a little weak but like you get the surgery done you get yourself patched up they can and i know that from experience they can be tough ones to to get back going and they can be tough to rehab but like they're worth spending the time on because you can come back then like a new player we've badly missed thomas o'hearn this year but like i don't think looking at the nature of the way he injured it which was in a clean out that there's much that s and c could do to prep that guy do you know like you have other players as well then like um like andrew conway for example at the moment has had a knee injury since the end of last season and he hasn't played a minute uh or i haven't even seen him in training videos um this season that to an extent you could go well look is s and c failing that guy hard to know really i mean he's rehabbing obviously but like at the same time you would say that he's a winger with a good few miles on the clock who hasn't had a whole ton of injuries over the last couple of years in an incredibly abrasive game and you know heading into his his early 30s that's kind of where those injuries start to pick up you look at keith earls now i'm not sure what the crack is with his injury from the weekend but you look at his um like his age like (laughs) like again when you're at that age injuries you get take harder to recover from like you could say with Leinster this year they've had a, a fair few injuries that have ended up being midterm as well you know like Jamie Osborne uh Johnny Sexton Jason Jenkins was out for a month or two well two months more actually 
You look at Charles Natai has been out for a good bit as well. Tyke Furlong's only been back in the team fairly recently. Robbie Henshaw was out for a fair bit as well. So I think every team in this game has their injuries, but I think what's been Munster's issue is is that we've had a whole ton of injuries in one position, which is bad luck, you could say, but to a certain extent as well, you could you could go, is there something that we could be doing in training a little bit differently? We have been this season. I think next year you'll see Munster in a really, really fit space. Um, And I think as well, it kind of comes down to just getting a bit of luck with guys as well, because the more games you can play in a row, the fitter, the less likely you are to pick up one of those midterm ones, unless you get a, you know, a bad knock during a game, which look, that can always happen. But um, it is one of those things. I think that it's, yeah, look, we, 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 we have a fair number of injuries. I'm not sure if it's more than the other provincial sides, to be honest, but um, in a game like this, you're always going to have them. But I think that, um, you know, I think the way we're training will give a few benefits to, you know, being fitter and being, you know, having more availability in the longer run. So I hope that answers your question a small bit. Kerry G says, why isn't there a draft or similar system to spread out the players amongst the provinces? Um, this is something that has been spoken about in, you know, roundabout ways. There, there's been ideas around this before as to, how can we better use the the excess of players that are there where if you're a younger guy and we'll say you're not we'll say a, an elite one category uh prospect for who you know gets in and gets playing a bit like Kendallin or James Ryan or you know Jack Crowley or you know uh Nathan Doak guys like that like where you don't get that sort of game time immediately you can find yourself training an awful lot and if you're a guy then like we'll say jack boyle um you end up not playing as much ail as you maybe could be playing either and to be fair a lot of those guys don't really like playing ail all that much anyway because it's all risk all reward yeah look they like they like the games they like the clubs they play for it's good crack and stuff but there's way more pressure on an academy guy playing in a, just a regular division 1a or division 1b game than what there would be for any of the other guys who might just be playing for their club or whatever else who aren't on contract or on an academy deal because it's such a there's such a big risk for those players where if they show up for five or six AIL games for example and they don't have a great game or if they're minding themselves with the idea being that look nobody wants to miss out on you know URC game time because you picked up a knock in an AIL game the week before like because again look I watch every single AIL game um, for Division 1A and a lot of them for Division 1B um, so you see guys there who aren't minding themselves but like a guy like Scott Buckley for example does not look the same player playing for UCC as he does for Munster like playing for Munster he is incredibly physical and, agra- and, and, and abrasive and doesn't look that guy uh, for UCC even though he has scored a number of tries for them off the back of malls and whatnot. Um, but like that to an extent we have to expect it like where these are professional players they want to play for the province because that's where that's where the money is that's where the exposure is and, and that's where the, the big crowds are um, like so you want to do that but at the same time you like AIL games some of the atmospheres I saw at the weekend there in those playoff games and in the run up to the playoffs um, where the atmospheres are superb and AIL itself is a good league like there's a good standard of rugby there but like I said it's a double edged sword for for any contracted young player but like those guys are in a situation where you could say well would they be better off moving to another province and like you said they're having a draft coming out of we'll say under 20 level um 
I could see the benefits of it. Straight away, you have a, um, you know, a, a, after an under-20 campaign, maybe after the summer campaign, where you have the World Championships, you could have a draft where uh, each province will pick one guy that they want to lock down before there's any draft at all. And then look to try and pick guys with different academy fellas, drafting in fellas. Hey, look, it could be good. It's like, you know, but that then assumes that the players are just pieces that to be moved around the, the country. Um, it doesn't work that way. And this is something that's happened a number of times when it comes to trying to get guys, and it's mainly from Leinster, to be fair, to try and get these guys to move to other provinces. It's been tried. Like, they, they, like they, they have said it to fellas, look, there's a there's more money and there's maybe a, a better route to international rugby for you if you were to move over there, you know, and you could all of a sudden play a ton of games for them and, and you know, go from there. Like, you could do that. But then you're talking about, like, from a human perspective, like, they've got to up and leave maybe you know the the close to the parents at home uh the girlfriend at home your friends move to limerick or move to galway or move up to belfast you don't know anybody and at the same time it's not like leinster is saying there's nothing for you here either like leinster at the moment with regards to the the wages that they have available like they've got a huge contract spend so much of it is taken up by the um the the provincial or the irfu that their own provincial budget is not affected all that much and uh, academy contracts are also paid for by the IRFU so when you look at the middle spaces and the senior professionals that Leinster are actually contracting they're not that many like there's obviously there is a lot but not when you include the number of academy guys who might play for them during a season they're all paid for the IRFU also this is the same for all the provinces so when it looks like, you know, you've got a young provincial talent who's about to go into the academy system, the IRFU could say, well, if you want to get an academy contract, you have to go where we send you. And that's that. But it's never really as simple as that either. And I think what, you know, you, you would look at the moment, for example, where if you're a front row in Leinster, like a hooker, for example, there's a good guy coming up. I think his name is Stephen Smith, Right outstanding young hooker coming up playing for Kilkenny right he is a freak physically unbelievable I've watched like video of this guy and it's hard to believe he's still in school right but he's coming into a system where they have Dan Sheehan who's about to be made at a very very well paid man um, with a central contract coming up next season Ronan Kelleher who's already on a fairly hefty provincial contract from Leinster underneath that they've got uh, John McKee who's on a senior contract now as well they have Lee Barron, a guy who's fairly highly rated as well. Looks to have the same sort of physical profile as Dan Sheehan also. Then you have uh, Gus McCarthy. He's the under-20, you know, Grand Slam winning hooker from just this season, just gone. And, like, you've got... How many hookers is that? Like, that's a ridiculous number. Like, and he absolutely is in the academy. So, you look at that and go, like, how do you... How, how do you get, get minutes for all those guys? For Leinster, the first option is always, like, well, Dan Sheehan and Ronan Keller will be at Ireland. So, yeah, like, that's true to an extent. But there has never been less of an overlap between league play and international rugby, certainly in the URC. So there's minutes there for them if they 
you know, if, if they need it. And that's always been the case for Leinster. That when they, if they're under pressure or if there's a game they have to win or they can't afford to be seen to lose, you will see them put in guys like Dan Sheehan and Ronan Kelleher or whatever else if they can. And the young guys just wait your turn. Like there is an argument that those guys aren't getting the exposure that they possibly could be getting if they were playing at Munster or Ulster or, or, or Connacht. But, and this is where it gets kind of, kind of, we're getting into the whole thing of like what's best for the IRFU, what's best for the province, and then what's best for the actual individual themselves. For some guys, they will have the drive to go and, and, and to make it for themselves in another province. Like we've seen that. How many times have you seen it? You know, you've seen Ty Byrne going to Clinetley and, and turning into a world-class player over there. You've got Andrew Conway wanting to make the move to Munster. Felix Jones as well wanting to make that move and, and you know, being successful. I think Ian Keatley is a guy as well who, you know, went over to Connacht, made a big name for himself here. Play, or in Connacht, played big games for, for Munster down here. Now, look, you can say it didn't really work out where he's turning into a kind of a, you know, elite level player. But he got his Ireland caps. He got plenty of Munster caps. He got plenty of Connacht caps. He was only overtaken as one of their top scorers relatively recently. So, like, he had a fucking great career. Like, an outstanding career. And for for young guys like that, I think when you're younger, there's always that internal confidence where you're going, well, look, I came up through the Leinster system. I want to be a Leinster player, and that's that. So I'm not going to quit and I think it's it sometimes it is framed or at least implied that that's what you're doing if you decide to go somewhere you know somewhere else from Leinster because look it benefits Leinster because again the cost to them is actually relatively little like you know they, they can play the likes of a Lee Barron for free they were playing the likes of a John McKee this season for free as far as they're concerned because like from everything I've heard academy is paid by the the the, 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 the by the union so with that you're kind of going well look it's a free shot and if, when it comes down to contracting those players then, then you're paying for them. Like then there's the, the usage per game and the, 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 the return on a, on, a, on a contract investment that you have then. But up until that point, like it's, it's, a bene- it's a net benefit for Leinster to have those guys available to them. Because look, to be fair, Leinster do have a whole ton of guys who are uh, up at Ireland level. So that comes with a physicality tax that guys come back and they're more prone to injury so you will need more more depth guys as a result and um like i have no problem with that but when it comes down to the long-term success of players i think that's something that they've looked at will we move guys can you draft guys um it's all fine until the player doesn't want to move and then you're going well we've a great player here he's sixth in the depth chart at, at, at leinster you know so like he doesn't want to move so what do you do like if the player doesn't want to move that's the whole thing kind of kind of done you know like because you can't force him I know it's a case in New Zealand where you all hear hear those stories of you know from Lango where a fella goes look if you want to play for the All Blacks bang you're off to Wellington and if they want to play for the All Blacks they go because there's always another player but that's not really the case in, in Ireland at the moment and for the time being it seems at least there is much more uh, competition and far more players being produced in Leinster at the moment. That might not always be the way. Like, I think there's a lot of the conversations that come around this, they're they're based on the idea being that, oh, well, Leinster will always just produce a ton of players. Like, that was not always the case. And there's nothing to say 
that it will continue to be the case either, which I think Leinster are aware of also. Like, there's a feeling, and I think this is more to do with uh, fans and media than what it is with the actual coaching side of it and development side of it. There is nothing to suggest that if you've produced X number of players over the years, that you will then just continue to do so, like, in perpetuity. Like, it doesn't really work that way. Like, there was a talk, I remember around the time, like, the Munster were in the, the late, you know, mid-2000s on, like, that these guys were coming in, like, said, so Dennis Leamy comes in and is a top player, Dennis Hurley coming in from nowhere, Tommaso O'Leary, Conor Murray, there's a talk that, oh, well, these guys come in and we just produce great players here, and that'll always be the case. There are any number of things that can step in and completely disrupt that chain of uh, of production, we'll say, for young players. It is not something that's always guaranteed. And the last thing you want is for you to be kind of cutting off a bunch of guys kind of going, well, look, we're sorted. We're set here at hooker. And then have one of those guys turn around and turn into one of the best players in the world a season or two later. And then you look like an idiot. And to be fair, at the moment, Leinster don't have to make tough decisions. So like you can count on one hand, I would say, the players they've got wrong when it comes to making reads on who do you keep and who do you cut because there is no external pressure as such, you know. Um, now, whether that'll always be the case, I think it depends on either David Nusifora's whims or whether he's still the performance guy over the next couple of years. That's going to be a big a, a big question mark, I think. But I, I, the reason why they do it is is because they don't want to spread the players amongst the provinces because to do so would be to anger mainly at the moment Leinster parents and Leinster players who want to play for Leinster. And like that's just kind of it's not really fair i feel to put a ultimatum down on a you know an 18 or a 19 year old player to go look you either move here or you're not getting a contract because you only miss out on talent and you kind of put people off so that's mostly the reason why they haven't done it to be honest uh, next question. Uh, do you think England will or should abandon their selection policy of uh, English-based players given the mass exodus in time for next season? Um, I think they'll have to. Um, there's not a massive amount of Atom Liquid Solid 999, by the way. Uh, thank you for that question. I don't think that England have a whole ton of talent at the moment relative to the other teams where they could afford to say, well, look, we're not going to select Jacques Willis. <laughs> we're not going to select um, Luke Cowan-Dickey, uh, although apparently there's been some issue with his uh, medical or something. I'm not sure. Or, you know, Jack Noel, who wasn't really involved anyway. Um, the reason why they have cap selection limits there is to prevent what's happening now, which is to keep an element of competition with regards to retaining English players for English clubs to make it a little bit easier for them. As in, if you have X number of, like as in if you have your, your if you're playing in England, you can play for England and you'll get topped up when you play for England. That helps those best English players to stay with English clubs. Same way as the Irish um, selection policy is a, as a means to deflate wages such as they are. But I think certainly with the way that the game is going from a physical perspective I think that players understand that you've only got one career it can be incredibly short so if somebody's asking you to take 
maybe less money now to play test rugby, which is a high pressure environment. Up to a certain level, guys may not be as enticed by that anymore. They may want to play for their club and all of these guys are getting played you know, relatively, relatively well. But uh, I think if England start to lose too many of those guys, at the moment they haven't lost massive names. There's fellas who you could bring in who you can replace and develop and, and stuff like that, certainly after a World Cup cycle. So it won't really affect them for the main show, which is you know the, the World Cup this year. But if we're talking about maybe one or two years down the line, they're still, you know, losing guys like, like guys like Mario Atoji and Marcus Smith or whatever else. And the fellas who are coming in to replace them aren't really of the same level. Like you will just like you will just start to degrade from a results perspective and you can become you can become Italy very quickly. The old Italy that we remember, just the way Italy are changing their perception, you can get down and start losing games and all of a sudden you're wondering what the hell happened here. It's about players and quality and, and top-level coaching. And if you don't have all three of those, you will start to lose games. And losing games is a dangerous business in this. And as we were speaking about in this podcast earlier, you want to win games. You don't want to lose them. And if it comes down to it, they may be forced into a tough decision. But... Um, and again, none of these decisions are made in isolation. There's always a knock-on effect to it as well. Um, so thank you for that question. Ronan says, If Ireland had continued with the AIL as the main development pathway, what changes would there be to how the academy and pathway systems currently run? That's a good question, Ronan. And it's a complex one. Um, I think at the moment, what they've seen, and, and certainly from uh, an Irish perspective, is that when you have... Um, a system like the Leinster school system you know like especially in the Dublin private school system where all of this stuff is happening regardless of whether you're paying a euro into it or, or 10,000 euro or not Um, it, that's a very tempting thing to kind of go all in on because it's all happening anyway you don't have to pay anything for it up until then Rugby was still played in schools. I mean, in the early 2000s, of course it was. But the AIL was kind of seen more of a, of, of a proving ground. So that, you know, when you came through your club, you played AIL. And if you played AIL well enough, you'd get representative honours at Munster or Leinster or whatever else. And then Ireland would come. That's how, that, that's how it would work and function. In an alternate universe where, say, for example the national teaching council don't like you you have to have um you don't have to have a, a national teaching council number to get paid anymore right i think that's how it works herself as a teacher she's told me this before, she told me this before how it works but i've forgotten um where all of a sudden the private schools in dublin um have to pay if they're going to be fee paying schools they have to pay for their education or for the teachers wages out of the fees that they that they bring in all of a sudden that decimates rugby programs or it cost, makes them cost way more, or the money that they have to spend is way less. Um, if in an alternative universe that's already happened, we'll say in 1995, then what would happen is that the IRFU would have to spend a lot more money than what it currently does on the development of facilities. And it comes back then to your clubs and the status of your clubs as player production factories. At the moment, why they like it with schools is, is because... You can get all the talent into one area from all over the place. So rather than having, you know, two good players at under 18 level in Young Munster and we'll say two in Old Crescent 
and three in Corcon and um you know you've got two in Highfield and three in Gary Owen and you know four in Shannon or you know whatever I'm just picking numbers out of the air like they're all over the place so instead of those guys being spread all around the place a lot of those fellas will end up in the same school so a lot of those Gary Owen and Old Crescent fellas might end up inside in Crescent Comp or Munchens or uh, a lot of the Cork guys will either end up in CBC or they'll end up in Prez one of the two so there's a kind of a concentration of talent there which you can then start applying uh, pro level resources to right so in Dublin and in Cork too and in, 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 in some of the Limerick schools as well they have resources that are available to them gyms gym facilities pitches you know pro, you know trainers who have a you know because like, for example like Tomas O'Leary is the director of rugby for Clongowes I think it is up in, up in Kildare um, once you once you have all those guys in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a one spot you can start sending development officers then so you can start seeing all these guys performing and playing so it's easier when they're at that young age of we'll say from 16 on up to start getting them into essentially pro programs reason why it's so successful with the Dublin schools is is because these guys are essentially professional rugby athletes from 15, 16, 17 on to a certain extent. That's not really the case in the Munster schools at the moment because it's a there's a different environment there. But um, that only helps players be pro-ready sooner when they come out of, of, of secondary school. So, like, you know, you've got the odd freak down here, like Alex Kendall and whatever else who are ready to go uh, super early. But most guys need that extra bit of time to get physically up to speed. Um, and I think that comes down to, um, like, the, for example, as you said there with AIL, like, what would it come down to there? You're probably waiting longer for players. Um, players would still get coached well. Like, the, the club facilities would obviously would have more money spent on them from a central perspective. There'd be more money spent to, to clubs for them to develop guys. Uh, I think you'd have a more... Um, a more varied style I think sometimes in schools rugby everybody can end up kind of playing the same um, but it, it, it would certainly add um, way more expense to uh, the development of players way more than, than than what is there now so I think it suits everybody for that you know, like for, for that purpose but like you'd have a bigger AIL I suppose which would be drawing bigger crowds Um which I think would be a good thing also but there'd be drawbacks that would come with it also which is like by the time players are, are kind of are coming up and ready like that's kind of who they are at 22-23 so like there's a feeling that if you get guys younger you can give them a higher ceiling which is you know it, it is true but like it, it basically allows for more control at the moment when it's mainly focused in the schools in the AIL you would have I would say you would have a a wider base of players, which is always good, was always a big strength for Munster. Um, but, you know, the school sometimes, I think, can be a little bit exclusionary, which means that unless you've got the money or you're spotted and you're, you can you can go to the likes of, uh, you know, St. Michael's or whatever else, like, there's lots of things that can go wrong there. Like, what I like about the idea of clubs is, is that it would be a wider net catching more people and because again with, with the private schools the one thing that we don't speak about there is that there are fees involved and not everybody can afford those fees 
and that in itself then kind of becomes one of the exclusionary factors for for children and for their parents where there could be great rugby players right now who miss out because they never go to St. Michael's or they never go to Black Rock because they don't have the money for it or they never go to Prez. I know the money is, is much less in Prez than what it is up in Dublin schools, but still, like, that's the, that, like, that, like, that is a risk. And if you're not in that environment where they get to kind of put a little bit more of a pro structure on your coaching, uh, then you can end up, like, Munster have this club select um, team that they have that they bring into the, the Munster Senior Cup every year that's those high potential young players and Edwin Adogbo is one of those guys actually who they try to bring in and get a bit of coaching into them from their school or their club where they might not have that same level of 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 just resources available to them and it's it's been quite successful for Munster so it would look a little bit like that I think but it would I, I still think clubs have a big role to play as well with getting in these guys at a younger age um, even before school which they already do like and uh, continuing to develop them there. But yeah, look, it would look radically different. And the main thing would be way more money being spent. Um, like, you know, and I, I think with the academy as it is, the clubs themselves would be academies and then look to get into the, the, the Monster Senior Squad. I think there wouldn't necessarily be that much of a need for an academy, so to speak, rather than picking the best players under a certain age and then looking to try and work with them as much as possible, which I know is what an academy is anyway, but there's a distinct title for it this year uh, and or in, in the current era we live in where being in the academy is a very distinct designation, which almost makes you, you know, you, you, you go to play for a club rather than you go from your club to the academy. You know, it's kind of more tilted towards the academy. So, um, yeah, I hope that goes some way to answering your question there, Roland. Uh, Sean says, Hi, Tom. What do you think needs to happen to level up the playing field in the Champions Cup? There's a massive gap between the top three, to lose La Rochelle and Leinster, and the rest. I think this has led to the competition losing a bit of its magical feeling because everyone expects the same teams to be there from the semifinals onwards. It's very difficult for a lower-profile team to make a good cup run if they don't have the budget and constrained by having to fight in two competitions, for example. It would also add so much to the competition if most teams going into it genuinely believed they could go on and win it. Um, thanks, Emil. Yeah, Sean, I, I think what they want, they want the top teams competing to win it every year. That's what the tournament wants. They don't necessarily want a random winner every other year. At the same time, they don't really want dynasties either because it makes it look like this is a piece of piss to win. Um, one way to level the playing field would be for me to remove seeding. Um, certainly after your um, after the pool stages, have it be a random draw from there, because I think what we've seen at the moment is that with the the four game pools we have at the moment, which, which will be gone not next season but the season after. I think what we've seen from those is is that they often intersect with whatever your domestic business is at the time. I think we've all seen um, teams showing up to the RDS or to the Aviva Stadium with a shadow team because they don't want to take on Leinster like for like. That's two five-point wins for Leinster at home. Uh, and by the time it gets to January, teams are already out of Europe, so there's no point going hard. So all of a sudden, that's four bonus point wins for Leinster or for La Rochelle or for Toulouse. And then they just coast through the final, like they, they coast through into the into the knockouts. And like I, I think that it would be, honestly, if you look at how 
your 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 teams get to the final, right? I think if you randomize what happens after the pool stage, that maybe when you are drawn, um, you 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 qualify top of your pool, for example, maybe you guarantee a home game then. But to have it a bit like the Champions League, where once you once you qualify, it's random. It's names drawn out of a hat, and if you get a bad draw, you get a bad draw, and. I think that would be a way to level the playing field a small bit because at the moment it's all set up to filter the big teams through from the pool stages into the knockouts where they have, in Leinster's case at the moment, home advantage all the way to the final, which it is what it is this year. But even if the final was elsewhere, you'd still have a round of 16 game, a quarter final and a semi-final all at home, which to me is... It's it's unfair in the tournament, not just for Leinster, but for any team who would have that that advantage would be unfair. So I think that the 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 best way that it can be done is to randomize it. Now, if that means that you have two legged games, which I felt actually were quite a success last time around, then you know you've got a, both teams have a home and away draw. Maybe for the quarter final, maybe for the semi final, maybe that would work. Um, but I, I think that that would make it a little bit more competitive because then. The pool stages are what they are, but um, when you, by the time you get to knockout rugby, you don't have fellas coasting through where, you know, there's just, again, like the, the teams who just about scraped in, play the top sides, and by the time they're coming around then, it's like the, the season's already over, so guys are rested or they're rotated out because they've got domestic business they've got to deal with. I think that randomizing after the pool stages would be a great way to level it up a little bit and to make the likes of La Rochelle and Leinster, for example, meet each other in a in a in a, in a quarterfinal, um, and to have that game there and to okay, let's have that big damaging game there and see how you go. That would add a little bit more unpredictability to it for me. I feel. Uh, Patrick N says, if the reward to choke tackle was removed from the game, for example, when a player is held up, they get tap to restart instead of a turnover. Would this be a good way to lower tackle height? It absolutely would. Um, at the moment, there is a value still in going high-ish. Everybody at the moment is trying to avoid those yellow cards and red cards that come with the high contact. They're being coached to change that up. Most clubs are. But when it comes to um, the choke tackle, it's still an area where being really upright from the start is about... It's It's got the same reward. So... With that comes those dangerous kind of soak tackles where guys are kind of backing backwards to, to stay upright and keep their keep the ball carrier active and up. Um, and there's there's high contacts come with that as well. I think if you have it where um, if you uh, have that tap restart, it has to happen. I think it's actually a very good idea, Patrick, where you're speeding up the game, you're not having a scrum and you're making more ball and play time. I think that would probably be a, a really good way to look at it, actually. that's uh, I think that would be a net benefit actually somebody suggested that the word rugby um tom this is from ec23 do coaches need to be restrained in motivating their players at this point of the season if trophies are still up for grabs for example making passionate emotional speeches about how this is the biggest match of your career it's now or never it's all on this etc if they say these things and end up coming short how do they get their players up for the rest of the season or even the following season you've got to be very careful with your use of that stuff as a coach um because you've got to go to the well sometimes and use stuff a bit like that. Um, and everybody knows what it is. Like, you know, when it's the biggest game of your career, it is and it isn't, you know. But you've got to believe it in the moment. The problem is that when you start going to the well a little bit too much there, when, 
And again, I've told this story before about, you know, a friend of mine who was at a Munster A game in 2015-2016. I think it was Mick O'Driscoll was the head coach at the time. And uh, he or one of the other coaches at the time were giving the players at halftime of this A game in Athlone, I think it was, the where's your fucking pride uh, speech, there or thereabouts. Um, <clears throat> not the time for it, <laughs> I would say. Um, probably not the time to be going to the well with that stuff when it's an A game. Because if you start using it all the time, then it won't have an effect when you need it, you know? And I think part of the reason why people talk about theming now, which I mentioned earlier, was like theming is to theme a season and to put some sort of grander narrative on the season as opposed to being we're a rugby team who wants to win trophies. This is what the Crusaders were talking about. Um, Ronan O'Gara in particular. They come up with these concepts which narrate the year. And it can be something like an example of a theme would be um, would be the bad guys. The bad guys are coming and we're coming to steal back what's ours. And if you can get your team to believe in that, to believe in that story, it becomes a self-motivating um I suppose gimmick that you can buy into now the coach will still need every now and then to put guys back on track but if you can code guys where they're already doing that speech in their head you'll be a long way to going where you need to go but to answer your question you do need to be careful about how you choose to use certain aspects of um, that sort of motivation because otherwise you're kind of doing the same old shit every week and all of a sudden the players are looking at you and they're kind of going oh where's our fucking pride same place it was last week you know it's it's a difficult one to, to to judge and i think a lot of the money a coach or a head coach will earn is understanding when it is that you have to put that out there so it's just i think it's one of those things where you have to manage that desire i suppose to fuck guys out of it but at the same time have a process that is strong enough to take care of the vast majority of the motivation itself. So the process is the motivation. And there's a number of different narrative cues you can build into that. And look, and then like I said, sometimes guys do need to be fucked out of it. But that kind of comes down to making sure you're picking the right moment to go, well, we need to go nuclear now. Like, Munster throughout the season, they were tough with guys. The coaches were tough with guys. But the time they really needed to get tough and get fucking, like, stand-up argument tough was after the Sharks quarterfinal uh, in um, the, or the round of 16 game in um, Durban for the Champions Cup. After that, Munster went, the coaches went hard and they got their reward and they got their, their motivation, which means that it's a bit like using a challenge in basketball. Like when you use it and it's successful, you get to keep it. When you lose it, you use it and you don't, you aren't successful, you're regretting it. So yeah, no, I think that that um that is something that's a good question, um. But I think that you're able to keep your overall theme uh, in in line. You won't need to do that often, and the players will often do it for themselves. So thank you very much for listening to this uh, mailbag. Um, if you've got any questions you'd like to send into the next one, you can do so info at threeredkings.com. Um, or you can leave me a message on Patreon underneath this post. Or get on the TRK Secret Club and leave a message in the TRK Mailbag channel. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for being a TRK subscriber. I will talk to you again very, very soon. Music